Hi everybody and welcome back to our podcast Do You Know What? It is our ninth episode and we have a new tradition of rather than having just one guest of having two guests in our studio today. I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginski from Liberal Judaism and I am as always in the studio with my two friends Leo and Rebecca. Say hello Leo. Hello, Charlie. What another week. Uh, still in lockdown, but the sun is coming out, so it's, uh, it's getting better. And Rebecca, have you been enjoying the sun this week? I have. I planted a tree yesterday, um, so I'm well getting into the sun. Um, but I've also been uh, channeling Queen Vashti, which I played as part of our Shabbat morning service yesterday See, morning. So you didn't have a very long part then? On at the beginning... I- uh, dubious morals we, and off I, again. I, I, we we raised Queen Vashti up to the height that she deserves, and we did her desert island discs. So, just for anybody who's not following along at home, it's been uh, Purim this week, and often in the Jewish community, as always, there's debate about one of the characters in the Purim story, Vashti. Leo, you clearly there said questionable morals. I uh, have my own T-shirt which says hashtag. Me too, with uh, Vashti. And clearly Rebecca is talking about raising up Queen Vashti in uh, the community. Well, I suggest you all re-watch the Desert Island Discs section. It is available on YouTube, Twitter and Facebook. It will be 13 minutes of your life you never get back. But you will see me playing Queen Vashti. As you said, there's been a lot of talk about Vashti this year, uh, mainly because of the Me Too, mainly because of other areas, that her story of somebody who was literally murdered in some way right at the beginning because... she wasn't murdered, she was chucked out. Well... (laughs) <laughs> disappeared disappeared at the beginning because she refused to appear in just her crown is that right charlie well i think certainly she refused to appear in front of uh, the king and all his uh, merry men on uh, can we say orgy um on this podcast but i think also what's been interesting with the and all the festivals during lockdown is that it has raised voices up that perhaps we wouldn't have heard in other words and allowed a whole new layer of midrash to be created actually though this is a perfect time for me to introduce our guests because one of them sent me a message yesterday saying that for the first time ever he understood what hearing the whole megillah meant having been to a purim orthodox purim service in the heat of uh, february tel aviv and so the first guest in our studio today is my younger brother ben who is as you heard in tel aviv but the three of us the three of us, would not be complete without our middle one, without Abe, who making up that threesome is in fact in New York. So I'm delighted to say that today we have been joined by Ben in Tel Aviv and Abe in New York. Hello, how are you? Hello. Hello. Very good to be here. I'm an avid podcast listener, but this is my first podcast appearance. Oh, welcome. Good luck. Something along those lines. Um, You were reminding the other day that you and Abe actually have been on a broadcast together before. Abe? I'm drawing a blank. Ben said that he was on like university radio with you once. Oh, oh yeah, the not quite a podcast, but back are these in the just day. stories you tell your sister to keep her quiet? Burn, <laughs> Burn FM, Birmingham University Radio. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, we would never mention orgies or use the word threesome in uh, on our radio show, but I'm glad to be on. So a, we've on already a show lowered where, the where tone. Thirty are, seconds yeah, in. At, That's at what happens when you join a Jewish yeah. podcast, Abe. <laughs> There's only two things that are really at the heart of Judaism. One is sex and one is food. So we've got to cover both in one (laughs) way or another. You had it here first. Well, as a a copywriter, my only uh, disappointment was that you had a hashtag about Vashti and didn't call it a Vashtag. Oh, do you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to keep an eye on Kingston Libshaw's um, okay. Twitter feed next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> so everybody has heard that you two have the uh, pleasure of having a sister called Charlie. Uh, we know you both live abroad. Where are you and what do you, what do you do these days? I am in Tel Aviv and I've been living in Israel for the last six years. And I am an organizational consultant. I work with a lot of different individuals, teams and organizations, helping them 
be more effective, yeah, mainly in the public sector. And what took you to Tel Aviv, Ben? Um, well, do you know, liberal Judaism had quite a big part in that. Um, I came to Israel when I was 18 with, uh, with LJY, and, um, which is the youth movement of liberal Judaism, and spent some really good time in, uh, in Israel. My wife is also from LJY. Um, and we felt that we could have a really good life here. So we moved here in 2015. We first went to a kibbutz in the north of the country, but then we felt that the only place where we really connected and saw a future was in Tel Aviv. Fantastic. They're the uh, LJY, the liberal Judaism Jewish continuity story, uh, Zionist Jewish continuity story that no one ever hears. Um, Abe, you've got a slightly different story. How did you end up in New York? What are you doing in New York? What am I doing in New York? Well, I've been here um, for coming up to 11 years, which seems just ridiculous. I, I moved here in 2010 uh, to pursue my career in advertising. Um, and uh, Ogilvy, um, the agency that I worked for, moved me over. And so, yeah, um, I've done the second half of my two-decade career in advertising in New York. Uh, in, I live in the East Village in my apartment where I'm speaking to you from. Um, and I've just uh, literally in the last two months uh, left my um, my regular uh, work to start my own company. So uh, literally Monday morning is the first uh, is our first board meeting, which is um, very exciting. So what's the new company doing, Abe? Um, it's a ad consultancy. So it's still in the same world, but um, kind of branching out to um, all sorts of sensorial media, so visual and audio, but then looking as uh, as the other senses become digitized, like touch and smell and taste, like how can you communicate in interesting ways um, with that? So yeah, I'd say a sensorial communication consultancy. Wow, there you go. And you said that us saying orgies on a podcast was hard work. I didn't say it was hard work. I said it was uh, it was novel for me on a on a Sunday morning. Whereabouts in the city do you live, Abe? I live on St Mark's Place, which is the kind of um, roaring epicenter of the East Village. So it's Eighth Street if you're walking up from Houston and First Avenue. Um, so right next to beautiful theatre, um, tons of restaurants and bars that have obviously had to recalibrate mm. since the. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, how are things in the city? Because I've got I've got a few friends in New York. I used to, I used to go to New York a lot for work, and I've still got some friends there. Last time I spoke to one of them, he was saying it was pretty grim. And how are things at it's, the moment? It's definitely feeling brighter. I mean, the um, the, the weather um, is helping. It started to get a little bit warmer, a little bit sunnier. This this whole outdoor dining thing, and I'm not sure. I'd be really interested to hear how that is in London and Tel Aviv. But here, it's become a kind of additional piece to the to the uh, kind of cultural flavour of the of the of the city. Places have really kind of decked out these beautiful mm-hmm. um, exterior interiors. Um, and so I don't know. It's feeling it's feeling much better. Um, and obviously, how was we that have over the winter? Pa- how sorry. was that over the winter? Sorry, the the, the dining. Because um, it gets bitterly cold in New York, doesn't it? Tough. I'll show you one of my embarrassing purchases, which is a set of um, electronic hand warmers. Right. Um, so they kind of saw me through the grimmer days. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're coming out the other side. It's going to be sunny. Or, yeah, I think today's terrible. But after that, th- this week looks like it's going to be lovely and sunny. And Ben, you're a very different world in Tel Aviv. I mean, all we hear here is about how the vaccine's being rolled out in Israel and lots of people quoting Israeli statistics. And actually, you got your vaccine a while ago now. Yes. So I was able to get vaccinated in January. Um, We had a a five week lockdown. And even before that, I managed to get vaccinated. I've had both doses. And so so as my wife and most of our most of our friends as well. seems that the uh, the rates going going up though as well um despite that so uh, i don't really know how that works and what that means and i know israel's being held up as a as a beacon of of what stands in the future but i think the the truth is like a kind of a mix basically of really positive news and things can move forward um but still concern about about what it means and the extent to which the country can kind of divide up different sections because if you look at a map of where the infections are in my area, which is a mainly secular 
kind of progressive area. 90% of people, a very high percentage of people have been vaccinated. In other parts of the country, it's, it's much lower. And then there's a question of, do you, as you, you're really familiar with in the UK and the US, do you kind of have a blanket policy for the whole country or do you find a way to localise it? And then what does that mean for society once you start localising it? And does that increase divisions that already exist? So we're talking about the long-term things. And uh, for both of you, one of the long-term things you've had in your life is your sister. This has got to be the opportunity with the two of you on a podcast and with Charlie to start dishing the dirt. And this is really what Rebecca and I are here for. Uh, and, you know, she's not in control, which is also something that is a very rare thing to happen. So we would be really keen she's for you scared. to tell us what it was like to grow up with Charlie. Go on, Ben. Well, you know, when I was 11, I started at secondary school. And um, the way it worked, me and Abe went to a, an all-boys school and uh, Charlie went to the girls' school that was just, just across town, kind of part of the same uh, school and in the sixth form if you studied theatre studies and you were from the girls school you just come across to the boys school and um, so Charlie learned there we all did theatre studies actually but I remember very vividly when I just started I was about two weeks into into being kind of an 11 year old in a new all boys school and my sister showed up uh, I think shaven head um, <laughs> chatting with all the teachers um, and it was kind of, that kind of didn't make settling in the easiest thing, you know. That people are looking for any kind of way to uh, to make your life difficult when you're 11. But saying that, I wouldn't have wanted that any other way. And uh, Charlie does things her own way; she always has. And uh, as you, as I've got older, I've appreciated that more and more. But did you appreciate it at the age of 11 when everyone was going? Is that your sister? I think this, yeah, that was the subtle undertext of the of the story. Was that it was a, one of my more challenging school experiences. Although interestingly, only a year later, or maybe two years later, I was living in Israel already, and you came out to stay, which was a really unusual, I think, experience for most. However old you were, sitting at the mm. bar while I worked, <laughs> eating pizza. Um, so there were some advantages of. Uh, of having a much older sister around. Definitely, definitely more advantages to the, the disadvantage. The, the problem that I have is that Charlie knows way more dirt about me than I know. <laughs> well, not that I know about her, but I have to be very careful if this becomes reciprocal. Um, I will say that I'm pretty sure Charlie spent more time at the boys' school than she did at the girls' school in the years that, uh, uh, in the years that she was there. Um, but I think like Ben, it's... Um, it's 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 funny. I think you reach a, a certain point where your siblings go from being um, annoyances and um, competitors to being uh, allies. And you know, I think um, uh, particularly around that age, when when Charlie was in in Israel and I stayed with her, and again, um, that unlocks another number of stories that she can tell about me. Um, is that uh, you kind of you realise that you're 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 way closer than than any friendship or um, you know it's it's family and it starts feeling like that in a very positive way. So, what did you guys um, think when Charlie said she was going to become a rabbi? Was that something that you saw coming? Was that like an obvious step for her, or was that like whoa? Yeah, no, it was very obvious. I, to, to me, at least. I don't know, Ben. Go. Uh, I, I remember exactly where I was when you told me. So I remember it being a very significant point in these. Gosh, it's not 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was standing on, on Moor Park Station waiting to catch the connecting train, either back to Watford or into town. I really remember clearly you phoned me and told me. Um, I think at the time, actually, it, it was a bit of a surprise because you were recently back from Israel. And I didn't know it was something that you were necessarily contemplating. Um, but looking back, you know, you know, you have a bigger scheme of things, a uh, longer view. And when I look back at that and think about the things Charlie was interested before in and had been doing and her experience in Israel, then it makes a lot of sense. But at the time, yeah, it stands out as a big event. Not 9-11, but it's something <laughs> I remember clearly. Like a good 9-11. I think that also, like, Charlie just did what she felt like doing. Um, and that involved, you know, going to Cambridge leaving Cambridge to go to Israel to pursue uh, a life there 
And um, and I think if Charlie had said that she was going to be a roadie for a heavy metal band going through Europe, it wouldn't also have been that much of a surprise. You so know, it could it have equally been, been that another. or a rabbi. I mean, I think ultimately the end point would have been rabbinic, like, uh, you know, wisdom can only stay down so long. But I think, you know, her journey to get here is not the typical. Whenever I tell people, and honestly, Charlie, it's, it's a great first date first great date opener of saying my sister's a rabbi and then I tell her but she's not what you think of as being a rabbi she's you know she's got nose piercings and you know will happily breastfeed on on uh, you know in in uh, synagogue and um you know I she a, a badass rabbi is how is how I always describe her um but yes a, a amazing date opening if uh, if anyone needs a uh, I'll <laughs> bear that in mind. <laughs> and actually, we've had some quite serious theological conversations as well. That um, I think both my brothers come at Judaism and religion from quite different perspectives from each other, particularly, but definitely from me. And it's kind of funny when you see how much unites us, but at the same time, you know, we grew up in the same place, had the same kind of religious. Uh, experiences went through youth movement but now I think look at it quite often on the surface very differently but when you kind of tackle it a lot of things are still quite similar um Abe's always had a real struggle I think with organized religion particularly and um I think some of that's been exaggerated as well by being in the states and Ben's now got a completely different experience of religion being in in Israel that's also shaped your Jewish identity changed your your relationship well can yeah that sounds great so can you both tell us about that ben i was sorry i was just going to clarify as well about this what i said at the beginning about being a orthodox purim megillah reading that's not where you'd usually find me on a friday morning it was uh permits for a cousin i i think i've taken a very um very familiar path of uh what i'd describe myself as a secular israeli um, which is that I, I don't really do anything that's particularly religiously Jewish. We, we live about 20 metres away from the biggest reform synagogue in Israel here. And we always say, oh, we should go there one day. We've got a 20-month-year-old a son who you might hear in the background here. Um, and kind of we've felt more of a pull to do that since he was born. But, but we haven't gone and done that. So it's um, everything's kind of surrounded it i feel like i'm telling a cliched story really um but you know we do celebrate all the festivals somehow you know we go to friends there's particularly one friend's mum who insists on having us around for every single festival so we're definitely celebrating all the festivals but not in a way of going to going to synagogue and it it suits me great i'm very happy with it um but i i do think the kind of liberal judaism it's there in the background and will be something that I do feel we'll return to, you know, um, like we've got cousins here who the female children won't have a bar mitzvah like the one I went to on, um, on Friday. And that seems very surprising to me. And, um, an Israeli, uh, reform rabbi is just about to run for the Knesset and he's probably going to get elected, um, Gilad, Gilad Kariv. And he's, been already told by the other rabbis in the Knesset, mainly from the old, well, all from the ultra-Orthodox, that they won't pray with him. And that kind of stuff starts to, that rankles, that bothers me. So I'm not kind of, and I'm not sure it bothers your average secular Israeli. So there's something for me here that's unresolved. But it's only six years that I'm here. So I think there's still more of that story to be, to be told. I think it's a really, that that whole situation of where and how some certain rabbis have said they're not going to pray with him they're not going to treat him as a minion they're going to refuse to be in various different sections of the Knesset with him I'm like bring it on bring it on and you'll see where you're going to end up long term because it, it, it once you start unpeeling that onion and the world sees that you aren't that you're doing that that is going to cause a lot of problems to some of the orthodox and you can't hide it any longer and maybe maybe we've pretended and we've sort of gone and apologized for it in the past and i'm not i'm not going to apologize for it any longer i don't think we should be it will cause a problem but the problem has to be put out as 
we've had with in the last few years the me too the black lives matter these other things which we sweep under the carpet and have ignored for a long time it's time to actually say no no more on this and bring it on and, and we'll see who wins this what do you i mean charlie you're you you know this probably is quite close to some of the things you deal with i think it's it's really hard because israel and religion and politics i think is so different from um here i've been really conscious during lockdown the shift of the working with cross communally so i think i may have said it on the last podcast that we did of of getting letters from federation rabbis from um orthodox rabbis calling me rabbi which i just never heard of before so i think there's something in it that you that you say leah that when actually people are in an environment where they have to work and it's exposed that actually maybe that's the time when workings change it's really hard to know whether that moment is there yet um in israel and i think you know a uh, interesting coming back to you in terms of the the Trump moment of like feeling when those moments happen and I'm not sure that Israel is at that moment yet of 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 ready for change what do you think Ben do you think do you sort of share Leo's optimism the kind of bring it on attitude about this or I'm a bit split about it because I think that Leo's right and I think that part of the problem with more progressively minded people um, has has been um, that, that they've not been willing to to be as as robust and as uh, to to play hardball really, mm. um, and at the same time I think that the attitude and maybe there with some legitimacy amongst the ultra orthodox is that bring it on and I wonder how much can be done when it's kind of this clash of of, of bring it bring but it you, on but you have to you have to you know you're never going to change these things if you just try and ignore them um in my mm. own world in the world of sport i was told 25 years ago that we, i would never ever get a contract in ireland unless i had a capped irish lion on my board of uh and the company i run everything in rugby in Ireland and I still don't have a capped Irish lion on my board and it's just life you just have to sit there and go I'll challenge it I'll challenge it if I do the right thing and I do the right job I'll get the right business and I'll get the right and get you get through it if you've got the right politics and the right uh, plans for people you will get through it and maybe you'll leave some of this behind but we have to if we don't challenge it if we don't challenge whether it's the patriarchy, whether it's anything else, and you don't challenge it, it won't change. I've been spending an it. awful lot of time challenging. You went through a real rabbit hole, didn't you, for a while, eh? spending a lot of time challenging people. I wonder whether you agree with that analysis. I do. I think um, challenging any status quo is, is completely necessary. I'm a progressive. I, I don't add anything really to that. I believe that change is important and that change comes about through often uh, uncomfortableness at best, um, violence at worst. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, the reason I, I think maybe not at the time, uh, it, was, it, it wasn't deliberate at the time, but looking back, I think it was no, um, no fluke that I ended up in a country that um, constitutionally separates the only country um, in, in the Western world that separates uh, church and state um, constitutionally, um, even, even if the behavior does not reflect that, the, um, the constitution um, that gives us the most protection um, allows for freedom of and freedom um, from uh, religion. And I think that um, has set up um, a very positive in most respects, destructive in some, but uh, a positive discussion that has to go on completely about where do, where do our morals come from as a country? Are we, are we um, is, is it in God we trust, which is on some of our official buildings, a lot of our official buildings? And your on money. Our, on our currency. On our currency, yeah. One of the things that I love about this place is if you go and put the Ten Commandments up in, uh, up in a town square, someone is equally able, and did do this, um, to go and put um, 
the a, a statue of uh, a satanic goat right next to it because that has as much right in the public forum as the Ten Commandments. There is no, um, from a from a constitutional po- point of view, there is no uh, bias on which one on which one de- deserves more. So, I think the the conversation here, what that has also done, has meant that you know, as well as a large Orthodox community in uh, in New York. Uh, which has suffered during the pandemic. That's the same thing that's happened in, across all right side, the, the, the politically, religiously right side of, of all religions has had the same thing. Look, look globally, that's been, that's been the case with churches, with in, in Korea, pandemic was spread um, via this. So I think that, that common sense dictates that certain things that were thought of as being okay become culturally unacceptable. And, you know, communities also have a responsibility to the wider community to behave not just on their religious beliefs, but on what the science says at the time. So I think um, the US is a very, is, I, I think, has that challenge mentality, like built into its very core. Whether that's healthy or destructive, who knows? It, it kind of varies from, from year to year. So I think it's a question for me not of whether we challenge. I absolutely think we have to challenge status quos that don't serve the people. And I think that most status quos don't in some way. I think it's a question though of, uh, of using your power and energy in a, in a smart way. And I think that in the, the bring it on clash between bring it on of progressive and bring it on of ultra-Orthodox, ultimately I think the progressive cause is going to going to lose that and so I think it's a question of whether that's where the where the game is at where the the fight needs to to happen or whether there are other issues that need to be taken on more urgently and like there's a lot of other inequalities in Israel that's you know you can split it ultra-orthodox and progressive you can also split it in terms of class as well Um, and so I think it's about a question of having to choose what am I going to fight and then the question is, how am I going to fight it? And I increasingly feel that we need to find ways to, to kind of cleverly have feet in different camps and be able to be understanding where the progressives are coming from and understanding where the not progressives are coming from, even if that risks really compromising us with the people who, uh, who, who kind of believe in us from either side. So one of my thoughts always has been... In- covering both of those points together is that I always felt that with Barack Obama as the first black president, that it wasn't, I didn't expect to get a black president the next time and the time after, but the one after that, I still believe will be black. And then then from there onwards, it probably will not ever be a white president again for a very long time because you've broken the (laughs) barrier. Once you break that barrier and you break that cycle, you can move forward. And I, feel that this is another moment in the time the same as we we're getting women coming into uh pr- prime minister's roles and other roles once you break those ceilings then you open it up to get these people in but who did we get after obama leo remind me well i i don't know why that would be a prediction and i i don't agree with it i mean if you look at the way in which the country's split at the moment you've got 80 to 75 million, like that's the, that's the split. There are still 75 million people who, who wouldn't vote. Um, uh, I think a woman is going to be harder than, um, than an African-American um, in, in, in power. There's, there does seem to be this more, even from um, conservative women, there seems to be a reluctance to think that a woman can be in a position of, position of power. I hope dearly that in 2024, we have a progressive candidate who can who can build bridges and move things forward. I would love it if that was Kamala. Um, I I would be I would be delighted based on the fact that she continues in the same vein for, for through through this um, uh, through this term and and if he manages a, a second term. But I I think it's very very wishful thinking in a country where gerrymandering and voting is absolutely skewed to um, to stack the odds in favor of white men i think it's very very i think it's still wishful thinking to think that that's um that we're going in in one di- in, in one direction i think what we what we're going to see is a much more divided united states where we have 
um, where things are pinging back and forth between between progressivism and conservatism. And I don't see what the problem of having a white male president is if the policies are um, intended to lift those um, minorities that uh, uh, minorities or non-minorities, as in the case of women, 51% um, is not a minority, but as long as um, uh, the, 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 the equality within the country um, progresses too. I, I don't think it really, I think Biden's a, you know, is, the, is the right president for now, even if his profile on the surface of it seems to be um, outdated part of the part of the patriarchy. We talked uh, uh, on our podcast with Josh Edelman a couple of episodes ago about the prospect of... Um, Kamala Harris running against Donald Trump in 24 and we thought about mm. that as a fairly dark bleak prospect what do you think Abe well we'll find out today I mean it, you know mm. he's uh, Trump is talking at CPAC and mm. um, the Republicans seem absolutely unwavering in their support of him and his son and it, it, it feels a bit <laughs> maybe a bit hypocritical to talk about nepotism on a podcast where there's three Beginskis on it. But mm, um, yeah, good point. It's, um, <laughs> it's uh, I think the, the danger is that we that we start a dynasty of Trump of Trumpettes in Ivanka and, and um, uh, Don Jr. Yeah, it's a bleak prospect. But yes, uh, I think it's a very realistic. So we'll find out today. Tr Trump will announce today. Um, if uh, it, it looks like that's what his speech today is going to do, is to announce that his um, his run in 2024. I do think it's bleak in one respect. It's very disappointing that after four years of what we've seen, anyone would think that um, that man is worth voting for. But I think that at least it's the devil you know. I, I feel at least the the the, the Democrats uh, know what they're up against. Know then what the fight is. Um, I I see. I see potentially, and I'm sorry if I ramble on. Just, just, just shut me up. It's all right. Um, we, you said but, earlier it's three beginnings on the same call. We, we're used to this. <laughs> Our expectations Still for you to be managed, like we used to at the dining table. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, we do uh, just uh, Rebecca and I normally do just on our own. So <laughs> with one. But I just think that like that's a very likely. I think that's a very likely presidential race in 2024, and I think it actually sums up the country. I think you've got um, two candidates then that speak to the half of the country they represent. What I would hope is, as we move forward, that we get more and more leaders that unify the two sides and find out that exactly to Ben's point, I was nodding along, um, agreeing violently, as we, as we say, um, with, with him in the fact that it's not really even a religious thing or a race thing. There is a class issue going on mm. where um, the... Uh, the bottom 15% of, of, of the workforce of, of any race is, um, is just forgotten about by both sides. And I think that once, um, once someone can come in and unify and actually create value from people who don't even make, you know, fighting to get a $15 minimum wage. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. But I think that unification, I hope, is what the future leads to, even if it's through a few years now of more radical left versus right it's got to ring bells though ben of bb i mean this idea of coming back of somebody who better the devil you know therefore we may be more equipped to deal with i mean in israel that's been definitely not been the case the opposition party really has fallen apart yeah definitely and i actually think that there's a uh, a warning in it as well not that it's necessarily going to be heeded but what happens when you unite the working class, it can be something that is very progressive and it can be something that's very not progressive as well. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to see probably at the next election, I don't want to make a prediction because I think that's like a terrible thing to do, but the candidates who are most likely to do better than they did last time or potentially to remove Netanyahu from power are not progressive candidates. They're actually to the right of Bibi. So that'll be the question, I think, in... in US is, uh, and in lots of other places, is that going to come from the left or is it going to come from the right? It needs to come from the centre, but I think we're seeing that that's very difficult to find somebody who can unite in that way. I mean, in my experience, the centre is hard to mobilise. The left is very bad at organising their own mobilisation, which is where the right wins, because the right can, they scare the living daylights out of 
either their own part people or the people against them and so they pushed it through the reason we started this is there is a reform rabbi could be uh, the next Knesset member and how the right respond to that I still feel that these things are there to challenge I still feel that once you put somebody up in that place going back to what you were saying earlier I don't think you win every single battle on this and you won't win every single battle but you have to actually take part in that battle to push yourself forward to the next one and eventually you'll push through the same way as uh, women's rights to vote etc took it didn't happen overnight these things that now look so stupid that you had these arguments took time for them to vote and in america as an example uh black right voting rights are literally they're not even 50 years old it's, it's, it's slightly longer but it's i mean yeah. it's it's it's, the point it's, stands. Yeah. The point stands that, uh, that, that, uh, that, you know, you need to push each one of these issues and eventually these issues will move, but it won't move on a single, on a single big swing. And I'm not sure it's healthy that it does go with a swing. I think, I think swinging, uh, just to go back to our... Orgy metaphor. Yes. Orgy metaphors. Um I, I think that swinging is not a, is, 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 is not a good thing for politics. I mean, that is literally unbalanced. You, you, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to see that um, sharp veering one way or another um, isn't, isn't healthy for a... Um, yes, you need, yes, you need people to stand up. Yes, you need people who are willing to sacrifice themselves or their liberties or their comfort or their an anonymity in order to change these things. But... Um, the, the change needs to be done in a way that doesn't alienate um, that doesn't alienate at the same time or alienate too heavily um, so that you're actually being counterproductive in your, in your think, progressive movement. I think there's two examples of that. Um, one in Israel very recently, which is blue and white and how they jumped in too fast and have literally didn't even hold on as they got thrown out the other side. And we had the same in the UK with uh, Lib Dems who thought that they could, they, they were going to tame the beast of the Conservatives and it destroyed them. Mm. They literally grabbed the live wire in both cases and have come out the wrong side. Interestingly though as well, Leo, the parallel between both of those cases I think is that both also compromised what they stood for in order to be able to do their coalition and in compromising what they stood for they lost their they lost their sense of identity they lost their natural voters um, and people that also felt compromised by them by by um, by association and i think that's also a similarity and there is something about how do you challenge and do what ben talks about about balancing interests in both places and understanding what the other is about and hold that conversation and at the same time not compromising yourself so we talked a lot about the current um i want to go back in time um which synagogue did the three of you grow up in and do you think it has uh, influence on your lives we did grow up at northwood and pinna liberal synagogue um via belsize square which definitely was a wonderful place to grow up and i'm not uh, wouldn't want to uh, negate that but i would say that the place that had the greatest influence on the three of us both in terms of or in terms of everything, really, has to be uh, Alpsnik as was, as LJY, um, because it gives you um, a sense of um, being part of the fight and actually making a difference, I think, and that that comes from your nature of being Jewish, not about being religiously Jewish, and I also mm. I always think that the term religious is, is too narrow, but religious in the largest sense is about being involved. And... We grew up in a youth movement, and a youth movement in the best sense of the word, that said we were empowered to make change. And I think all three of us do that in different ways, but feel empowered to have that conversation. And for me, I think if I look, what's the thing that the three of us are doing in different ways is we're trying to hold conversations. We're trying to create space where conversation happens. 
A does that very powerfully in, in lots of different ways, both through media and advertising, but also through his own personal social media and conversations and the interactions he has. Ben does it absolutely in the work that he does and the and um, the people that he meets and the number of people I meet that have been influenced by the conversations that they've had with him. And also that he's now training a whole new set of leaders to do leadership differently. And I think for me at Liberal Judaism, one of our main aims is to hold different people in the same space and have difficult conversations and to say it's so important that we have those conversations. But maybe you do disagree. Not at all. I don't I, at all. Yeah. 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 I, um, I wanted to add a couple of things. I'm not sure if it's about the exactly what you said, Charlie, but when you say, Leo, you know, which community did you grow up in? I also think of my experience with Kingston Liberal when you were the rabbi there, Charlie, and the kind of the idea that you don't just finish growing up at 18. That was a synagogue I was part of in my early 20s. And it had a big impact to see how a community works together, brings different people together, how families can find such meaning in, in shared community. And that was Northwood's wonderful synagogue that I really enjoyed being part of. But I really felt that and it connected with me, Kingston, at that stage in my, in my life. In the youth movement, I think like what you said, Charlie, is so true about kind of wanting to to fight for stuff and being able to stand up for things. And the other thing that stands out from that, particularly later on in my experience there, was the welfare side of things and the degree to which people took care of each other. And I think those two legs are really important. The leg of you know what you care about, but you can only really get there not by being ideological and just kind of being individuals who are all going to go after something, but by being a group of people who are looking out for each other, looking after each other, I really got that from the youth movement. And that's had a huge influence on, on my life, the Jewish and Israel part and that too. I think that's the key to it, right? I think that that's why you've got three Beginskis here with completely different, completely different ways in to the same thing. Like, I think that we are, our value system is, is very, very shared. We might have differences of opinions on things, but, we, but I think we, we have much more common ground than we have... Uh, Otherwise, but the, the fact that one of us is a rabbi, one of us is an atheist, one of us is living in Israel as a secularist, like the, I think that's a large part because our parents and our community taught us how to think and not what to think. That, um, that Judaism was a discussion and not a um, diktat. So I think that was a huge, I think it reflected the, the family we grew up in. And I think it um, was a very nice counter to a, a bubble uh, that we had in in Watford in our c community, it wasn't even though we were like the only Jewish family on a uh, in a largely Muslim uh, and Indian neighbourhood. So so it was lovely to you know have a group of people feeling where you belonged and and that being that being very much a discussion and not like you can't do this, you mustn't do this. Think about why why you did those things. Except Friday night dinner. Well, Friday <laughs> night dinner, and and weirdly, I've kind of gone back now. My um, girlfriend is Hawaiian, half Japanese, Korean, half. Boston Polish and she's now um, got me back into I'm looking at now I wish I could show you but I can't move the computer around I have a Habdallah set uh, which we do on Sunday evenings to see out the to see out sh the weekend Shabbat uh, we do sh light the candles now Friday night I don't know if you even know this Charlie but like I we're baking hamantaschen uh, later today um, I know it's a couple of days late, but, um, you know, I, I find myself returning to um, a lot of the ritual going back. The only negative thing I, I think about that you could say, although we were given exposure to other people, my biggest like religious learning experience came in on Schnatt when suddenly we were around people with very different religious beliefs who there was kind of like a lot of heavy discussion between Jews, you know, the, the very kind of nuanced between how we interpreted text. Um, but I think that the only danger is that you end up feeling like you could be in, that you, you create another bubble and you only look at it through that lens. Whereas going back to the earlier point, exposure and conversation is really the only way forward. It's so easy to, to, um, to preach to the choir, but it's much harder to, you know, to have those conversations with people who don't come from the same, come from the same point of view. And I think the more conversations that we can have that involve that, the better. So I didn't actually grow up in Northwood, but I joined Northwood when I was uh, around about 18. And one of the things, the day 
I can actually dictate when I actually said I belong was um, on uh, High Holy Days. We had uh, a rabbi at the time was Hillel. I don't know if you remember. And he did his, his sermon and he came out to the congregation in his sermon one year. It was the most moving sermon I had ever heard. Uh, I'm not gay, uh, but I suddenly realized I belong because you were sitting in a room with people who were accepting anybody. And it was just a very, very moving thing that he did uh, as he was ultra-Orthodox from an ultra-Orthodox background. And it, I don't know if either of the three of you were in that service that time. No. No, I think we were quite a bit younger. I remember Hillel being at uh, Northwood and joining Northwood and what a powerful thing that was for the congregation as well yeah. to go through. And, uh, you know, talking about Hillel opens up so many interesting conversations, actually, about what does it mean to be a progressive Jew? And Hillel, when he joined the um, Colrack uh, rabbinic conferences, was had to go through a number of um, learning experiences to learn what it meant to be a progressive Jew. Um, and after, you know, in terms of his academic learning, was huge having come out of the Orthodox rabbinate. Um, and, uh, but actually his experience of being at Northwood really shaping what it meant for him to be a progressive rabbi, I think was very, very significant for the congregation, but also for him but as it, a rabbi. But it shows that we can break down barriers. It shows then all of this conversation that we've had today about the fact that we're always on a journey in this. I mean, you know, it's very, as Charlie and Rebecca know, I'm a big fan of the West Wing. I used to watch the West Wing. I've seen every episode many, many times. And there is a part of it you watch and you go, I just wish we could be in that sort of situation. And we're not. But also, there's also belief in my mind that there is a possibility to get back to some of that politics um, it won't be an overnight thing, but we will get back to some of it. Abe's going to violently disagree. Go. I'm just going to offer a different point of view. And I think if I didn't, I'd probably have no place on this. But I, I haven't watched The West Wing m- more than maybe a few episodes of the, f- of the first season. And it's a, it's, it's a great show. Very, very well reviewed and um, well acted. I think there is a danger with viewing a, a sort of um, liberal, MAGA, progressive uh, bent of kind of saying, oh, well, you know, under Obama or under Clinton, th- there was a uh, times times were better. Sadly, that's just not the case. And, and I think that the issue that I have with the West Wing in principle is that it kind of sets government up as being infallible, that everyone that's in mm. there are doing things for the right motivation um, or that the right motivation wins out. And I think that I, <laughs> the show that I watch I, I used to love in the thick of it and, and, and veep. And I think there's a healthy scepticism about government and the um, uh, competence of those in leadership um, who are also just kind of like sticking a finger in the air and seeing which way the wind blows. That to me seems like a much more accurate view of how politics is decided. It's messy. It's, it's selfish. It's, it's compromises with people that you wouldn't want to make compromises with. And, and no one really knows. And I think that that, um, that view of government, to me, resonates much more than with the West Wing, that I think is basically is, is propaganda for systemic government, is, 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 a, <laughs> is a kind of lie of the way in which people see. Um, and I bought into it. When I moved to the States, the idea that Obama was in, that the country that I thought I moved to is utterly, utterly different from, from, from the one I actually live in. And it's, dep- you know, it's been a, a constant sort of depression to see that it's not built, it's not built the way that the West Wing would have us, have us believe it was. So last night I'm sitting at home and I got a text from um, Tasha, who both my brothers will know, my best friend in the world since we were at Watford Boys School, um, even in the times when we shouldn't be at Watford Boys School. Um, and she sent me this incredible article from um, the Paris Review about uh, Tom Stoppard's new play. Now, the reason partly she would have seen something about Tom Stoppard and sent it to me was because of the infamous theatre studies that we talked about at the beginning that we um, did together and was so significant, really, for our sixth form experience. 
Um, but this article, I'd really encourage anybody to go and read it. Maybe, uh, Rebecca, we can put it in the show notes. Um, it talks about how Stoppard talked for years about having a charmed life, that his reaction to his family's very difficult history with the Nazis was to say, look how lucky I am, how amazing everything was. And he comes across this novel that someone's written about him amongst other people, saying that basically they've got it completely wrong, that actually they're really negating their past and not understanding what happened in their past by putting on this kind of veneer. And that's the resonance I hear with what you're talking about, Abe, is that... You know, the West Wing provides this very kind of look what we can possibly do and be like veneer where underneath it, it's negating in doing so. It's taking us away from the real story of what's happening. So I say go and read that article. It's really fascinating. It's given me a lot to think about, about the women's movement and what it means for us as kind of modern feminists in negating the history of those people who went before us and you know the women's behavior in um, supporting other women so I would I really really important article for me so I think this discussion about the West Wing is a great uh, segue into our next slot which is where we talk about what we're listening to what we're reading what we're watching um, Ben earlier on I remember you said you listened to loads of podcasts so obviously I'm sure you've listened to every episode of do you know what religiously other than that, what other podcasts have you been enjoying recently? So the the truth is that I, I listen mainly to uh, to one podcast, which is the Adam Buxton podcast. And there's been 150 episodes of that. So that's really taken up a lot of my of my listening. I listen a lot to the BBC and they, they seem to call anything that's available to listen to afterwards a podcast which always uh, annoys me. But the Adam Buxton podcast is a really great podcast. Um, he, he speaks to a variety of people, some more famous than others. He's spoken from anything from Paul McCartney to kind of lesser known artists and other cultural and political figures. And he has what he calls a ramble chat with them, which is just a kind of rambling conversation. Often now that sounds familiar. <laughs> with a few jingles and um, I just think it's a great, uh, great example of the form, uh, as well as this one, obviously. Of, co- of course. Yeah, absolutely. Abe, what about you? What have you been either listening to or watching? Any good Netflix recommendations for us? Well, given that, given that my girlfriend is a publicist for Amazon Studios for the, for the show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel... Um, that, wow, I love yeah, that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love we that quite show. want her on our next podcast. So right. yeah, can we get her? You, you'll find her much, much better company <laughs> and, uh, and and way more interesting. Um, but I've been so I've been catching up on that. Not quickly enough for her liking, um, but um, I, I've been kind of I'm really, really impressed by it. I mean, um, is everyone familiar? with I it? have. I think um, I'm, I'm I'm at least one episode behind. I've certainly I mean one series behind, but yeah. There hasn't, been a, there hasn't been an episode for quite a while. I, well, yes, they've been affected with the, with the mm. with shooting during this time, but um, yeah, that's our family show as well has been, which is as a family we've all watched This Is Us, which um, is uh, regularly has uh, well me and my mum for certain in in tears, but she regularly checks up with all of us that we're keeping up to date with with that. Leo, any recommendations from you other than the West Wing? No, um, my recommendations at the moment, as you know, I've been moving house. So uh, I, my TV and listening has been down uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I just in part of the move, I'm now on uh, Virgin Media when I went from Sky. So I've got to rework out how to do all my box sets and everything and where I'm back to. I've worked out how to get Shit's Creek back. So that's started. Oh, so I'm halfway Schitt's through um, that anyway. So that's oh, continuing. Creek. I'm watching Firefly Lane. Oh, is that that's good? My, um, I really like it. I really like I've it. I've seen and that actually, Netflix are pushing it, aren't they? So Well, Rich watched it with me after being quite sceptical and he managed to sit through several episodes of it as well. I like it. I mean, it's not big brain exercise yeah, watching. Yeah, but sometimes that's what you need, isn't it? Did you watch the comedy that Dad wanted us to watch, the police comedy, the Israeli police comedy? Oh, that's I what, find that Hashitov or Our dad constantly sends us, like, random Israeli stuff. And the other thing is always French films. Like, Yeah, you said about the French films. French films. But, Ben, what, what Israeli um, fare would you recommend for us? 
So I'll give one Israeli recommendation and one other recommendation that I want to get in. So the Israeli recommendation, I, we're watching a lot of MasterChef at the moment, and it's brilliant, the Israeli MasterChef. It's like a real glimpse into um, the society here. And there's right. an amazing um, Bedouin woman on there who's um, like kind of, I think from a community where it really is not typical for a, a woman to be going out and being on TV and cooking stuff. And she's absolutely flying through the rounds um, and just this big diversity of people and uh, kind of listening to try and see what I can understand. There's bits that go over my head, but a lot of the Israeli words for food are very similar to English words like crunchy is crunchy and crispy means crispy. Um, so there's a lot. So you okay. Understand. <laughs> yeah. The non-Israeli recommendation I want to give, and it goes back to the question we were having about shows that show reality rather than a kind of uh, dressed up fiction is um, Ted Lasso. I don't know if anybody's come across this show about an American sports coach doesn't know anything about soccer, goes to the UK and trains a Premier League football team. And I think I've read very bad reviews of it, but I really enjoyed that a lot about, um, you know, his approach to management, which is really people first, people matter. That's how you get results. The team do get relegated at the end of the first season. That's a spoiler. <laughs> but I think it's about... Yeah, I will feel that one as a fellow Watford <laughs> fan, Ben. <laughs> Am I allowed to throw in another contrarian opinion? Mixed up in a recommendation. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> so I've also been watching Ted Lasso and I, 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 it, it's, it's very entertaining. I have to say, on the back of that, off the back of it, I started watching um, a show that I um, actually had never seen before called Friday Night Lights. Um, which is set in Texas about a high school American football team where a uh, coach is, um, is promoted, uh, he's promoted to be head coach but loses his star quarterback in the, in the opening game. It's the premise of the show. And I find it a very nice counter to Ted Lasso is a very like charming, charming look at, at soccer. And then uh, Friday Night, Night Lights, I think, is the more kind of documentarian um, vision of it. So I think they, they make a good companion piece to each other. So I watch Ballers, um, which um, is very like some of the industry that I'm involved in and how that works. Uh, the background of what sits behind sport. Um, and it's it's an interesting take. It's not when I say it's like I am in. There there aren't as many drugs in the world I'm in than there is on the TV. The thing is with anything. The and you were saying earlier, Abe, about the gloss of politics and what you see from the outside to the inside is exactly the same sport. Um, although I would also agree that Veep was was an excellent TV program. That was a oh, great. I never saw Veep actually. I might Veep was, check that out. You knew yeah. you knew exactly. When the mics are off, the language is as it is in Veep, I'm pretty sure. Is it like the thick yeah. of it? Is it the same kind of like it US? Is. It's, it's a kind of, it's a slightly, there's no Malcolm Tucker figure, unfortunately. Um, so it's, it concentrates more on the incompetence than the sort of brutal um, swearing fest that I really enjoyed in, in the thick of it. But it, 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 was it doesn't superb. have that. I have one, one more recommendation, which is not new, but as, as I think branches into sport and politics and, um, uh, and, and America, um, which is the finest thing that I think has been committed to film ever, which is ESPN's OJ in America. It's a five-part, seven-hour documentary that looks at LA at the time, that looks at OJ's sponsorship deals, where they try to kind of make him not black. Um, and the community's different reactions to someone who kind of didn't really belong in either. I thoroughly recommend it. It's seven hours you'll never regret. I think <laughs> it is literally, it's the finest thing that's been, um, that's been put to film. Um, and yeah, okay, strong record. that's great. Good to know. I have to say that ninth episodes are um, going to be a firm favourite for me, if only because I get to invite my family members to be part of our podcast. So uh, watch out, Mum and Dad, episode 18. We're coming for you. <laughs> do, they, do you think your parents will listen to this? Oh, yes, definitely. Mainly because Abe's on it. He's the prodigal son. So, oh, you know. I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so now one, we go into the therapy. Now we go into the therapy part of the podcast where we all talk about the issues that we have with each other from childhood. Ben. <laughs> Maybe that's episode 27. Ben just back on the table and we'll laugh. <laughs> so 
on that note, I want to um, ask both of you, if people do want to find you on social media, hunt you down, uh, where can they find you, Abe? Abel Babel, A-B-E-L-B-A-B-E-L, is pretty much all of my social media username. So, yeah, feel free to add me. I I, I can't promise to be uh, interesting, but um, I'm there and uh, good recommendations for television and benjo where can they find you i am on www.benbeginski.com and you can find details of my social media and how to contact me there oh i so should have done that i so should have done that i'm gonna give my url instead can we edit this in <laughs> of course go give your give your url learn from your baby brother a, 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 yeah thank you ben um abeginski.com you'll find my portfolio and uh contact details for all social media on that and uh leo uh wfc kigo on most social media including clubhouse um which i actually haven't been on for the last week or so but has, um, has it shut down uh, no it hasn't i still get an announcements to say that there are various rooms that people i know are keeping open we should do a clubhouse at some point actually just as an aside so they can also find you at clubhouse rebecca but where else can people find you uh, they can find me on twitter at r singerman and at kingston lib shawl and finally charlie where can uh, if they have nothing else in their life if they haven't had enough of you uh, well, they can find me on Clubhouse and on Twitter as Rab Charlie, as Charlie Beginski on Facebook. And uh, I'm all over the Liberal Judaism website, so come and see what we're up to there. So goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Abe and Ben. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.